may be seated. If you've got your Bibles, uh, why don't you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. This is, um, we've come now to the end of our sermon series on the book of Isaiah. We've preached through all of the, all of the chapters of the book of Isaiah, and so we now come to the end, Isaiah 66, and we're going to be reading and studying this morning, Isaiah 66, verse 15 to the end. So let's read Isaiah 66, verse 15 to 24. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they will come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my name, my fame, or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters and on mules and dromedaries, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offerings in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them I will also take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is sure and all of the things that you have promised to happen have come to pass in history. Not one of your prophecies has failed. Lord, we are grateful that including in, included in those prophecies are promises to sinners to save them. For that is what we all are. Lord, we pray that your word this morning as it is preached would be preached faithfully and we pray that each one here would be shepherded by your word. We pray that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very sad note to end such a glorious book. This is a book filled with the kinds of words that we are very familiar with if you've been involved in the church for any number of years. Even maybe if you're just 
aware of the church but have not been part of the church for a long time. Comfort, comfort ye my people. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Who will we send and who will go for for us? How many of these wonderful, wonderful um, words that we are familiar with of the Lord do we find in the book of Isaiah? Such glorious promises. We, We read of the lion and the lamb together and that child being able to play around a cobra's nest without being harmed. We've read of these wonderful promises of the new heaven and the new earth, and then we end on such a sad note. It's actually kind of a sadness or a judgment sandwich because you have our passage begins with judgment, and you notice it also ends with judgment. But in the middle, there is a glorious piece of comfort and joy. So much of our lives can be described by change, can't they? And what I mean by change is change in tone, change in sadness, or change in happiness. We're so familiar with having times of joy followed by times of sadness, or times of sadness followed by times of joy, maybe times of failure followed by times of success, or times of success followed by times of failure, times of fear followed by times where you're feeling just great peace or the other way around. Or times where you feel shamed and embarrassed, ending where you actually feel glorious and not ashamed. Or perhaps it's the other way around where you were feeling no shame, you were feeling quite glorious and then it ended because you had a time of shame. Now, here we see God's promise of his coming judgment an end to this cycle of things like this, an end to the world where that ebb and flow will be finally put to an end. And for some, they will experience never-ending, uninterrupted joy. Joy that they've not ever experienced before. Not this kind, because it is a joy that part of its enjoyment is that it will never end. Isaiah's terrible note at the end of a beautiful symphony leads us with such a choice ringing in our ears. God will either be glorified in our never-ending but undeserved salvation, or he will be glorified in our never-ending and very well-deserved punishment for our sin. Our first point is this, and hopefully you can see this with me in the first Three verses in 15 to 17. Let's read them. Actually, the point is this. God will come in judgment for the world. Let's read 15 to 17. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens Following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. God will come in judgment for the whole world. God is the judge of heaven and earth. 
And of course, he's going to be the judge of heaven and earth because he is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the one who made heaven and earth. He was the one who established a purpose. The one who makes something has the right to establish the purpose for which it was created. And he's also the lawgiver. The law that God has given actually just fits with the purpose for which he created the world. He is the lawgiver. He is the one who has the right to determine what is good and what is evil, that which is pleasing to him and that which is unpleasing to him, those things which he hates, those actions which he hates. And we understand that this is true, that there is good and that there is evil. There are actions, if people commit them against us, we would agree that those are evil things. But it is not us who determines that. It is God who determines that because he is the lawgiver. Not only is God the lawgiver, God is also the judge. God is the lawgiver and he is also the judge. And God's love for justice and righteousness, God's love for love, means that he has a corresponding hatred of sin. As an illustration, a person who has a great love of health would have a hatred of sickness. A person who has a love for justice would have a corresponding love for, uh, uh, hatred, sorry, for injustice. I want you to notice the word anger and fury. Did you notice that? The words anger and fury. These are not the kinds of words that we enjoy when they are pointed against us. But we can see that it is right and good that God would have anger and fury against sin, against injustice. Now, when we talk about anger and fury, usually when we say somebody is furious, we say that they are consumed with anger and that it controls them to do things that they ought not do. But that's not how we talk about it when we talk about the Lord. When we see that the Lord has anger and fury, this means that he is not out of control with this emotion, but this emotion controlled perfectly by goodness and justice. God will be appropriately and perfectly angry at sin. We see here the word fire. He describes his judgment when he comes as fire. He describes his judgment as fire. Now, it begins and it ends on that note. You can see the beginning, but you can also see it in verse 24, that idea of fire. And when the Bible talks about judgment by fire, the Bible specifically is looking at judgment that comes from God himself, not through things like nature or just natural consequences and stuff like that. We can picture in our minds the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And this was something that was very clearly from God himself, directly from God. In verse 16, we see that point highlighted as well. He says, for by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. He is here entering into judgment. God has appointed the government in order to execute judgment on his behalf for the time being. He says that the government is the Lord's servant to punish evil and to reward good. He is ruling, you could say, through imperfect and sometimes sinful governments. But when the Lord returns, there will be no such judgment through someone else. The Lord himself will enter into judgment. It will be at his hand. 
It's described as a whirlwind. Did you see that? Described as a whirlwind, a sweeping and complete. It's like a tornado. It's everything. There's, no, there's not a way to hide well from or tor- a tornado. Nothing is spared. This is emphasized for the fact that he says all flesh. What he's saying here is that no one, no one can say that God cannot judge them. No one can say that God is not the judge of me, that I am my own judge. No one can say that. Just like when a tornado sweeps through, no one can say, I don't have to uh, make sure I have to take precautions against that, that tornado. It's indiscriminating in that sense. Everyone has to take shelter from that tornado, all flesh. Now, in this, in this context, this means two, two things specifically. One, it's everyone who has never heard of Jesus, all flesh. All flesh, even those who have never heard of Jesus, were created by God. Given his law in their own consciences, God has established a law that every human needs to recognize and really does. All flesh. But in this context, it's also the reverse of that. Because some people think, yes, it's only the people who have never heard of Jesus. It's only the people who've never read the Bible who will be judged by God. It's only the people who don't go to church and very clearly, Isaiah is saying, no, 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 even it's those people who haven't and also those who have, even those who have heard the gospel, who are part of the church, who participate in worship services, and yet do not know the Lord. They do not trust his word, specifically the gospel. He says Many, the word many, those who worship the Lord and do not tremble at his word, who feel free to add rules, feel free to add promises, feel free to take away rules and to take away promises, and those who've never heard the word of God to be able to add to it or take away from it. He says they are all condemned together. Not only is God's judgment described as a fire and a whirlwind, it's also described as a sword. Did you notice that? With a sword, it's very personal. It's one by one. It's not a weapon of mass destruction. One by one. Dear friends, it is true. Yes, all have sinned. Yes, to err is human. All have sinned. But that's, it's more specific. It's worse than that. You personally are a sinner. You will not be condemned because the rest of the world is sinful. You will be condemned. I will be condemned by my own sin, condemned for my own guilt. And when the sword of the Lord is involved, what what this is saying is you will not be able to say, that was unfair. That was unfair. I'm being punished for something that I don't deserve. This is getting at the fact that God will be able to point to sins that you will agree on that day that you made that were worthy of condemnation. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. This is people who've never heard of God's word, never read the Bible, and people who read it very regularly. All of us, by our own actions, stand condemned. 
Now, thank God that brings us to our next point. Our next point is this. God sends the gospel of the cross to assemble a people of all nations into a temple. Let's read this in verses 18 to 21. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will, judge, I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Thus far God's word. Judgment is coming. A judging that judgment that is like a whirlwind. A judgment that is like a fire. A judgment that is like a sword. But so also is coming salvation. They shall come, and he says, they shall see my glory. God is going to gather a people from all the nations before the judgment. They will see his glory. All people have seen God's creation. Every single human, whether they've read the Bible or not, whether they've heard of Christ or not, have seen God's glory in creation. They've seen his laws. They know that there is a God. There is someone who created all of this, and that person who created all of these things is not one of us. And also, he has laws that we are all guilty of breaking. But what you cannot know, what you could not know, is that God sent his son to take your damnation instead of you. That you could not know by looking at the stars that you could not know by thinking about the commandments of God, by thinking about right and wrong, good and evil, that you could not know by going for a walk in the forest. You could not know that because it is a mystery that had to be revealed. It's not something that you could have expected God to do. You can expect God to judge. You could, but you couldn't expect God to die for your sins. And yet, he did. How will they come? How will this group of people from all the nations, how are they going to be gathered? He says, God will set a sign among them. He will set a sign among them. And what is the sign that God will send? He will set among all the peoples of the world to gather them. Well, of course, that is the good news of the Messiah, the servant that we've been reading about so much from Isaiah, the suffering servant of God, the sin-bearing Messiah. Let's turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. This is shortly before Jesus dies on the cross. This is a wonderful, wonderful passage. John chapter 12, verse 32. This is right after the triumphal entry. All of Jerusalem, in all Jerusalem, all Israel is gathered together for the festival. And they notice that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, which is basically code for, I'm the Messiah. And finally, this man, after three years, 
finally he's admitting he's the Messiah and he's, he's ready to be crowned as king. And so all of Jerusalem is filled with all of Israel and they're proclaiming him king. And Jesus knows what this means because he knows that before he is crowned king, he must die on the cross for his dear people's sins because they too are guilty just like everyone else is. They too, in judgment, would be destroyed by God because of their sin. In verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That's the sign. That is the call. That is the message that will gather all nations to the Lord. It is not just the message that there is a God. It is not just the message of the commandments that you have broken God's law, come back to God. That is not going to gather anyone. What is the message that will gather people? That God so loved the world that he sent his son to die and to not die for his own sin because he had none, but that he would have loved the world so much that he took our sin, the judgment, the whirlwind, the fire, the sword that was coming for us. He interposed himself. He stood and said, I will be punished instead of them so that they can be rewarded for what I have done rather than being punished for what they have done while carrying our sin, dear brothers and sisters, he was punished by God on the cross instead of us. He didn't do this simply to forgive sinners. Yes, to forgive, but much more than that, to reconcile sinners to God, to become no longer enemies, but now sons and daughters. He bore the fire, the whirlwind, the anger, the fury, and the sword of God for sin, even though he was without sin, without his own sin, that is. And all who hear that, all who hear that you are guilty, that the law of God condemns you like a fire, like a whirlwind, like a sword, who hear that and agree, it does. I know I am guilty. I know that I am bound for hell. All who hear that and believe that instead of you going to hell, Christ suffered for it on the cross are added to God's family and are saved. You are gathered, gathered into the family and household of God, gathered into the temple of God. John 3, we'll read it again. John 3, 14 to 18. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that, he, that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. Do you see the similarity to the passage that we've just read? The nations, all, the, the world, 
all guilty, all already condemned. Jesus didn't come in the world to neutral people and to condemn some for not believing in him and then to reward some for believing in him. No, no, no. He came into a world where everyone, 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 reader of the Bible and never heard of the Bible, everyone is equally guilty. And he came to save not only one nation, but the world, all nations. The sign is to be set among them. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, Israel has the gospel and yet is set beside the nations. The other nations are sort of around Israel. But in the New Testament, that means in the, the church that is after Christ has come, the gospel is set among the nations. The, the gospel will be placed in all the nations. He says, I will send my survivors to the nations. And then he gives a sampling of those nations. Tarshish, Pol, Lud, Tubal, Javan a sample of the nations, and then he simply says, to the coastlands far away. It's basically saying, the islands and all the places you've never even heard of before. You didn't take in world geography because nobody in your community knows they even exist. But I know they exist, and I will send somebody with the gospel to those people, and I will gather for myself a people from that guilty people as well. 700 years ago, 700 years before Jesus, 2,700 years before today, that prophecy was given. And dear friends, how faithful has Christ been to keep that? As soon as Christ died, he was buried. Three days later, he rose. 40 days later, he walked around in his risen body on the earth, teaching and preaching and encouraging the church. And then he ascended into heaven. And then just a few days later, Pentecost comes and he gives birth to the New Testament church. And immediately the gospel goes to all nations, more and more and more and more places, more and more and more remote places. And everywhere it goes, what does it do? Does it condemn people? No, they're already condemned. But what does it do in every single place? Well, there are people there that belong to the Lord and he makes them hear and believe. And as soon as they do, they are added to that great temple, the great city of God, New Jerusalem. They're added to the Lord. Their sin paid for. No longer fearing judgment because Christ already took it for them. Now looking forward to the return of Christ. And sometimes the gospel goes out at great cost. Did you notice it goes to some hostile places. Those who draw the bow, look out. You're, the gospel will be faced with a bow and arrow facing right at you. And yet it goes anyways. Because some of those people who are pointing a bow and arrow at the gospel and at people who love the gospel will be saved by the gospel and added to the temple, the house of God. I think it's important that we also notice that he doesn't gather a crowd he doesn't gather a crowd, but a temple, a house. People streaming into the temple the way that grain offerings used to be brought into the temple. And now the temple, as we've already seen in Isaiah, is worldwide. It is a living temple made out of living stones. Each person who believes in the gospel is added to the temple. It even says some will be priests and Levites. Non-Jewish people, priests and Levites? What are you talking about, Isaiah? Not just visiting, but there to stay, serving in this temple. 
No need to travel to Israel to enjoy the temple. That temple is fulfilled in Jesus' body. No need to leave Lud and Pol and Tarshish or Manitoba. The cross gathers the nations into the temple, the gathering of God's people. Each week we see this worldwide, and this morning is a beautiful example of this. The gospel goes out and it gathers. It doesn't just gather a crowd, it gathers a temple. It gathers a family. It gathers a household. He says that they will come, we will come as clean vessels. Did you see that? That we are coming to worship God. And we're coming to worship God without sin. Now you might say, well, Isaiah might not know about me because when I worship God, I definitely have sin. I know my heart. I know what I said to my family members earlier this week. I know what my thoughts are. I know these things. Isaiah said, you haven't read Isaiah 53 yet, have you? You can come as a clean vessel because somebody else already died for those sins. God has forgotten those sins. He has washed them away with the blood of Jesus. He didn't ignore those sins. No, no, no. He cared for them on the cross. He punished them already. Dear friends, if your faith is in Christ, you come to worship God as a clean vessel. Now, that's also a reminder to repent of sin wherever you see it. People who do not want, are not settling with the fact that they are a sinful worshiper of God. And the gift of the gospel includes the ability to repent whenever you are sinning, to turn away from that sin, repent and say, God, forgive me. Cleanse me with the blood of Christ. Don't count that against me. And please also don't let me remain in this sin. And God reminds us that he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. We are clean vessels because Christ's record has been counted to us. How long will it last? We started by talking about how many good things in our lives, wonderful, wonderful memories that we have, things that were highlights, wonderful, beautiful things in our lives, that each of those things maybe is a bitter memory because it comes knowing that that time did not last forever. Wonderful times with a family member that you really treasured and enjoyed, but that family member is now dead. Or maybe that family member is now estranged from you. How long will it last? God had saved his people in the past from various problems, from Pharaoh, from the Philistines, from drought. From... He saved them in the past in many miraculous ways. And yet, each time that redemption didn't last it was brought to an end by the sin of the people or by someone else's sin. That brings us to our next and glorious point. God's children's enjoyment of his glory will never end. Let's read this in verses 22 to 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. How long, how long will God's people's enjoyment of his glory last? How long? As long as the new heavens and new earth endure. Now, Adam was the head of the old creation, wasn't he? God set him up as the, 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 the ruler, as a vice regent, of all of the creation, and it lasted 
The blessedness of the first creation lasted as long as Adam was righteous enough to maintain that. We don't know how long that lasted, but if you have any pain in your knees or in your arms, if you ever been to a funeral, you know that it didn't last. Who is the head of the new creation, of the new heavens and new earth? Who is that? Is it Adam? Oh no, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of all of the new creation of heaven and earth. And it remains as long as he is righteous. And how long will the Lord Jesus Christ be righteous, dear friends? Forever and ever and ever. That new heavens and earth will endure forever because Christ is perfect. And the Lord says here that this enjoyment of his his glory by the church, those who have been redeemed and forgiven, it will endure as long as the new heavens and earth endure. So we know that will be forever because there will be no death. There will be no death because there is no sin. This is how long the church, those who are gathered to God by believing in the gospel, will endure. We will enjoy a relationship with God as long as Christ Jesus deserves it. And how long do you think Jesus deserves to enjoy being the Son of God? Forever and ever and ever. Week will go by, and then another, and then another week, and then another week. Wednesday followed by Wednesday followed by Wednesday. You'll have a full week. Sunday followed by Sunday followed by Sunday. You'll have a full week. Month will go by. He says new moons. Did you notice that? Month will go by, and then month will go by. More and more months. You'll never run out of months. It's not that every single day will be monotonous, right? He has this this flow of the week, and there's the flow of the the month. There will be a never-ending progression of weeks to worship and enjoy what Jesus purchased with his blood. When we've been there 10,000 months or weeks or years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. The best memories we have sometimes evoke a bit of sorrow because that moment is gone. But one of the sweetest parts of salvation, dear brothers and sisters, our relationship with God purchased by Christ, the part that he wants us to pay special attention to right now is that it will never die and it will never be quenched. It is the enjoyment of his glory that will never end. Did you notice this in verse 18 and verse 19? Verse 23, to worship the Lord. Dear friends, the gospel of Jesus is not merely that we will be forgiven. It is that. It has to be that. But it is that we are forgiven so that we can have God. As our Father, as our Lord, as the one that we worship and adore and treasure and lean on as we sung, as we sang, those who tremble at the word of the Lord, those who desire to be a clean vessel for the Lord's service, who desire nothing more enjoyable than to serve the Lord with a pure heart. I want to belong to him and know him and enjoy him. 
That is for, that is the gospel. If you have heard this sign, the sign of Christ lifted up to pay for your sins, and if you believed, you are now and will always be God's child. You are now and will always be not just a visitor of God's temple, but a pillar within the temple, part of the temple. You are now and will always be God's child. And you enjoy a relationship with God that was described earlier in this chapter. You have peace like a river. When all the world around you is in turmoil, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, you have peace like a river because the Lord who is in control of every molecule is your Father. And if he already gave you that which was most precious, which is his son, will he fail to give you anything else that you need? As the kingdoms rise and fall and one nation overtakes another nation as the world's superpower, we have peace like a river. Who cares? Christ is on the throne. The son of David reigns. And he is using the rising and falling of world powers intentionally so that that gospel, the sign of the cross, is placed in more places. He's got kids he wants to gather. And he will. He will do that. You have peace like a river. You have comfort. As he said in Isaiah 66, you have comfort that can only be described in human ways. The closest that this human, the human heart can describe this, the closest we get, and it's not exact, but the closest we can get is a fussing, crying baby being comforted by a mom, perfectly designed to be able to com comfort that kid. And then being fed and satisfied, and even not just satisfied, no longer crying and hungry, but Bounced on the knee. Isn't that wonderful? Isaiah gave that to us last week. Bounced on the knee. What a wonderful picture of the relationship we currently have with God. Satisfied. Consoled. Rejoicing. And delighting in. Wherever you are, Christian. Wherever you are, Christian. Assume that you have been sent in that place to raise the signal of the gospel, to gather more of Zion's children. There are more to be gathered. There are more to be gathered. And they might be in your neighborhood. They might be in your workplace. They may be in your home. Assume that wherever the Lord places you, he has put you there to raise the sign of the gospel, to gather more of his blood-bought children. Now, word to you, have you heard it? You've heard the gospel of Christ dying for your sins, that you deserve it, but instead he suffered for you. Has it gathered you to God? Has it gathered you to his holy and royal city? Have you turned away from your sin and trusted in the Lord? That does lead us to our next point, our last point, our final point, our worst point, the judgment of those who rebelled against God will never end. 
Let's read verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And so we have here the end of a book filled with great comforts and promises of heaven. And the Lord chooses to end on this terrible note. When the Lord Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, heaven and earth will be one. Heaven and earth will be one. Right now, they're two. But heaven and earth will be one. And that will be what the temple was simply a sign of when it existed, a place of perfect enjoyment of God who is most enjoyable. Not only will heaven and earth be the temple, it will be the most important part of the temple, the holy of holies, perfectly enjoying the presence of God. Nothing in between you and him. There is also then nothing outside the temple that is good. Outside the people who belong to Jesus, only outside there is hell, a place of death. The opposite of life, dear friends, is not non-existence. The opposite of life is not non-existence, it is death. And death is the wages of sin, the Lord Jesus has told us. Separated from the goodness of God, but not separated from God. Only left with the wrath of God, your just judge. You won't avoid God, but you will face him as your judge. And it will never end. He says here, the worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. Much like the church's enjoyment of Christ will never end. And here we see that the saved people, the forgive, not the... Not the people who are not guilty, but the people who have been forgiven their sin will be able to see them in some way. Why? It doesn't really say, but there's other passages in Scripture that lead us to some conclusions. Maybe they, it's because they get to see those who mock them for considering light, Christ better than life. Those people who mock them for saying, I will not add to the Word of God and I will not take away from it. I will not... Add more promises than God has made. I need none. And I will not add more laws than the Lord has made because I need none. And those people who mocked you and ridiculed you and called you impure and not a good enough Christian, I think it's also to see what we were spared from. To see also what Christ suffered instead of us on the cross. We were able to look out and see, and it will take an eternity for that to be suffered by God's enemies. But Christ took that, endured that in three hours. Can you imagine the amount of punishment and wrath that Christ faced on the cross? Willingly, instead of us, because he loved us we will be able to see that as a testimony to what Christ suffered on the cross. And so it will be a reminder of God's incredible love for us. It is also for God's glory to be shown. In heaven and on earth, it is a dem- we see the demonstration of God's grace in the new heavens and earth, the temple, the whole temple, the whole world. But it will also in hell be a demonstration of his justice. The corresponding truth of how much he loves righteousness and love is how much he hates injustice. And who are there? Did you notice? It says rebels against God. 
Brother George read for us the corresponding passage in Revelation 21. And there he, he says, he doesn't just say rebels, but he ex- extrapolates those guilty of sins that we would consider pretty heinous, but also, he says, even all the liars. And so that's summarized here as the rebels against God. Dear friends, that is all of us. All of us have rebelled against God. Not one of us have kept all of God's commands. All of us deserve to be there. And we have all rebelled against God. And yet God in his mercy has chosen his son to be treated as a rebel on the cross instead of those who believe so that we could be rewarded for how wonderfully obedient Christ was to him. I want to say a word to our unbelieving guests. And that might be a member. That might be a child. It might be somebody who's got gray hair and been a member of this church for a long time. I want to say a word to our unbelieving guests. Look to the glory of Christ, the Lord of the cross, the Lord of love, the Lord of comfort and joy, who gives of his richness and who took our wicked poverty of sin. Look at the wonder purchased on the cross. Look at New Jerusalem as described here. Look at the cost that was paid for it. And then take a look in verse 24 and take a a glimpse of hell. That is not what hell looks like, but it is a description of its sorrow. And that, dear friend, is your current destination. But it doesn't have to be. Because God once became a man and he obeyed the law for humans in your place. And he took what you would suffer in hell eternally instead of you on a cross outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Dear friends, your suffering will be made all the worse knowing that it could have been not. Turn to the Lord of the cross and turn away from sin. Do not turn toward yourself to get out of this mess of thinking, if only I obey God enough, if I obey him more and get out of this mess, you, you cannot trust in Christ's death and resurrection to redeem you, and you will not be disappointed. But unfortunately, the final note of this sermon must be the same as Isaiah's final note, because I am not a better pastor than the Lord. I am not a better preacher than Isaiah. I am not the shepherd of this congregation. The Lord Jesus is. And so the final note of our sermon must be the same as the Lord's. All who do not turn to Christ will remain condemned. Not become condemned, but remain condemned with a condemnation that is never ending, with a condemnation that is never soothed, and a condemnation that is more than just pain, perhaps worse than pain. Abhorrence, he says, shame. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we look at a summary of your judgment of the world, we confess that you are right in your judgment, that we are all as guilty as you say we are, 
We know that we have rebelled against you. Lord, I pray that you would spare us of that fate that we read of. That we would turn to Christ and be saved. Lord, we see the wondrous grace and love that Christ has shown. He didn't simply come to die. He came to take our place of judgment on the cross. Lord, we rejoice that he has done so. Father, I pray that those who do not yet believe in Christ, not been added by faith to your people, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the last day where it would be true to say of them that their destination was judgment. Father, I pray that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.